Psalm 33 is a passage we're going to come back to uh, in our message tonight as well, as it also deals uh, with the subject that we have before us tonight, which is the decrees of God, God's eternal decrees. And probably the passage that centers our thoughts upon that the most or perhaps encapsulates the, the idea that we have presented there in that uh, chapter of the Westminster Confession is found in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, when, uh, as I have mentioned, there are copies in the back of, of the uh, uh, Westminster and the different articles and the scripture verses, um, as you go through all the points, Ephesians chapter 1 just keeps coming back every time they want to make a point about God's eternal decrees, they come back to Ephesians chapter 1 as the proof text, um, one of many, obviously, but they, this passage they just keep coming back to. Um, that's how foundational it is for us to understand what God is doing in eternity, past, right? So, so I want you to think about that for a minute. Right? God has existed for all of eternity. Not, not, think about it not going forward, but think about that in the past. So what was God doing? We actually had this discussion okay, with, in, in elders this past Monday, so i got to give credit where credit is due. What's God doing in eternity past? There's no world, there's no earth, there's no universe. What's he doing? God's word tells us there are two distinct things that God is doing. One is enjoying the fellowship of the Trinity. See, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need something else to motivate him. He, he doesn't need something else to draw his attention. God is self-sufficient. In himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a glorious fellowship that is taking place. There is love between them. And that's all he needs. It's not like... Is that it? It's more like, wow, no wonder it was an eternity. The second thing that we learn from Ephesians chapter 1, that in eternity past, God was making decrees. God was making and ordering things as he would have them be. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salutation this evening. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us 
for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. As far the reading of God's word, let's bow and ask for God's blessing upon this portion as well. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the, this passage that you've pr provided us. We, here we read many, many words like predestination and... Um, <clears throat> an inheritance in many words and we thank you for the work that you have done through Jesus Christ your son even though we do not deserve this salvation we ask that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he explains this passage to us as this in Jesus name amen amen so two points tonight first of all background truths and then secondly declarative truths. Background truths and declarative truths. As we approach this subject of dealing with God's eternal decrees, particularly in regards to our salvation, there are four truths that are in the background of this. And if we try to understand or try to even deal with the decrees of God in eternity, apart from these four things in the background, we're, we're probably going to get this messed up. Or we're going to go off in tangents. Or we're going to be frustrated. Or we're going to be angry. Or worse yet, we're going to fall off into unbelief. So these four things that, that I'm about to say are important background. They're nothing new. They're not earth-shattering. It's not like stuff you've ever heard before. But if, if we try to understand these eternal decrees of God apart from them, we're, we're going to get into some trouble. So, what's the first one? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the ruler of all. He is dependent on none. And we don't have, I mean, as believers, we don't have a choice about this. Right? Either God is sovereign or he isn't. It's one or the other. You can't have a sovereign God who is not sovereign. You can't have a sovereign God who rules over some things but not over all things. If God is sovereign, then he is the ruler of all. The absolute ruler 
of all things. We can't, we don't get to pick and choose what he's ruler of. Sovereignty means, in the case of God, it is absolute, it is final. There is no higher authority. There is no authority alongside of God. He is sovereign. Second thing, he is omniscient. We had this a few weeks ago. He is all-knowing. And once again, I'll just put it plainly. Either God knows it all or he doesn't. You you can't have an all-knowing God who only knows some things. You can't have an all-knowing God who is somehow handcuffed by not knowing the future. He knows all things, but he doesn't know the future. He knows all things, but he doesn't know the next word that comes out of my mouth. Well, then he's not all-knowing. So God is either all-knowing or he isn't. God is either sovereign or he isn't. Third, God is holy. And as we talked about that, we will we'll simplify the sermon down to that means God is without sin, God is pure, God is perfect. So if God is holy, I can't say, well, God's doing something wrong then. Well, then God isn't holy. If I charge that, that God has done something in error, if I say God isn't right to do that, or God isn't just in doing that, or God isn't fair in doing that, then God isn't holy. That's what I'm saying. Now, my charging that doesn't mean that. It means in in my life, in my understanding. What, What I'm really saying then is, God, you're not holy. You're not perfect and you're not pure. If I say God doesn't know something, then I'm saying God is not omniscient. If I say God is not in control of all things, then I'm saying God is not sovereign. Number four, God is truth. God is truth. In him there is no falsehood. In him there is no lie. His word is truth. God does not lie. So, either God's a liar, or he isn't. Now, my saying, well, I think God's not telling us the truth, doesn't make him the liar. But I'd be approaching things with a God who's a liar. Well, then he can't be truth. It's one or the other. In a sense, what I'm saying is, folks, we can't have it both ways. We, we either have to take the truths of Scripture that we are given, confess them, believe them, acknowledge them, and live them, or our choice as individuals would be to say, he's none of these things. We, we, we really can't pick and choose. Now, gathered here tonight as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who come to worship Jesus Christ, as those who come to acknowledge 
Jesus Christ. Most of us as professing Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, most of us have come here as those, if not all of us, saying, yes, this is the word of God. Yes, this is truth. We are saying God is holy. We believe that. We confess that. We believe that God is omniscient. He knows all things. We believe that God is sovereign. Okay, now let's put those doctrines to work. Let's take those truths that, that we're learning out of the Westminster Confession, but more importantly, those truths that we're learning from the Word of God. Let's take those truths, put them to work as we think about and as we talk now about God's eternal decrees, the decrees that God has made from eternity past. So our second point, yeah, I'm there already. Our second point, but you know that sooner or later we slow down. Our second point, declarative truths. What is Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 telling us? It's telling us that God has, in eternity past, because I, I don't know how else to phrase that, made declarations. He has made statements. He has issued decrees. Verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him. That's that's an eternal decree of God. And he chose us in Christ, that's the him, before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means before time. So now we have to step into this, okay? And and we're talking about God's eternal decree, but we have to understand that, that God is not finite like you and I. God is not held in the realms of time and space. You and I, because we are creatures, because we are created within time, as soon as I start talking, as soon as I start using phrases like eternity past, our minds immediately go to a time-orientated thing. Okay, so what did he do before that? What did he do before that? Well, there is no before before that because it's eternity. And there is no time. There is no, there, there is no sequencing of time because God stands above time. Time does not rule God. God rules time. Space does not rule God. God rules space. How do I know that? Because God is sovereign. Time doesn't condition God. Time doesn't control God. Time doesn't define God. Time doesn't limit God. So the questions we are asking at times, what did God do before, are not really even legitimate questions to ask. If we understand the being and the nature of of God himself. And I know we want to know. And I know we want to press it. But what we have to understand as human beings. Is that's a human question. 
And by that I mean it's a human question in that, well, of course we're going to ask the question. Of course it's going to come to us because we are creatures of time. But it's a question we don't need to ask of God. We're going to ask it, but it's a needless question. Because it doesn't need to be asked. How many times have you not found your children asking you a question, and you as the adult are going, I have no clue, kid, why you're asking me that question, because it makes no sense at all. It does not make any sense. Oh, yeah, it does make some sense because you're a three-year-old. And three-year-olds ask questions that, yeah, don't always make sense. Sometimes we, as creatures, ask questions that really, don't make sense. When we think about and when we actually examine, what are we actually asking when we ask that question? What did God do before? There was no before for God. That's a creature question. Of course, we want to know. But there is no no to know. Because God exists outside of that boundary of time. Even the word eternity, even the word eternity itself carries with it some, some understanding of unmeasurable time. But yet we, we, we got to phrase it in, the, in a time word to understand it. And it's not only the before, it's also our after, right? We, we get involved in so many questions about the after. You know, well, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? It's eternity, folks. And there is no time. But remember one of the last things John tells us in the book of Revelation is there is no sun. There is no sun. Time shall be no more. So we frame the question and we look at it and we look at it through the lens that God gives to us understanding that when God comes to us now in Ephesians chapter 1 and uses language even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right? That God is coming and seeking to bring to us in language that you and I can somehow hold on to, can somehow put our time-warped minds around, our time-conditioned minds around, so that we have some sort of way of understanding that even before time, God decreed. That I would belong, body and soul and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't do that in Genesis. He didn't do it in Exodus. He didn't do it in Leviticus. He didn't do it in the time of the judges. He didn't do it in the time of the kings. He didn't do it in the time of Nehemiah. He didn't do it in those 400 years of silence. He didn't do it 
in the time of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't do it in the time of the Apostle Paul. He did it before time. Before time, God in eternity had chosen me, had chosen you to belong to Jesus Christ. You know, we, to, to a certain extent, when I, when I was writing the sermon, I thought, I actually could quit here. Because that's really what we mean. That this is what it really boils down to. This, this is the glorious, glorious comfort that God, the omniscient, holy, Sovereign, truth, God chose me in Christ before the clock even started ticking. I think I have reason to spend the rest of my life seeking to bring him honor and glory and praise. For that. But there is a second thing. It's not only that these are done in eternity, they are exhaustive decrees. Meaning, it doesn't just deal with my salvation or yours, that God's decrees in eternity are not just about my coming to know Christ, my being included in the sacrifice of Christ. It includes every single detail of life for every single human being, every single creature, every single molecule, every single atom. The eternal decree of God is the counsel of his will. It's God declaring all that shall be. Else he's not sovereign. Right? If there's some stray atom somewhere out there, outside of the control outside of the exhaustive decree of God. God is not sovereign. By very definition of the sovereignty of God, we have to come to this understanding. Yes, God has the hairs on my head numbered, and he knows when the hairs are going to fall, and he knows how they're going to fall, and he knows where they're going to fall. And he knows what they're going to become. He knows the sparrows when they're going to fall. He knows when they're going to die. He knows what they're going to die of. There are no contingencies in the plan of God. There are no, oops, wasn't expecting that one. Hmm, got to redo all this now. 
Didn't know that that person was going to do that. Didn't know that person was going to say that. I didn't know Luther was going to nail 95 theses to a door on October 31. Man, this goes all against the way I had this all planned out. Now i got to come up with a whole new scheme. God's decrees are exhausting. Now, as a Christian, as believers, that ought to bring us a tremendous amount of comfort. As an unbeliever, as a rebellious pagan, I want to shake my angry fist at God. But as a believer, to know that I'm in my Father's hands? Oh, and I know the question you're thinking. Because I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking it right along with you. Uh, wouldn't that involve sin then too? Let me read to you. A section from R.C. Sproul's book, Truths We Confess. Now some simple questions. You know if you know Sproul, there are no simple questions and there's no simple answers. Okay, That's just not the way he operates. Now some simple questions. Does God have power over our lives? Could he take our lives at any second? Does he have the authority or right to do so? Would he be violating any principle of justice if he took our life this second? If God knew what we were going to say and did not approve it, could he keep us from saying it? Of course he could. If he could have stopped us from saying a word, but chose not to, then in a sense, he ordained that we would say it without necessarily forcing you to say it. He knows what you're going to say. He can keep you from saying it because of his sovereignty. But insofar as he refrains you from saying it, in a sense, he chooses that you say it. If what you are about to say or what you are about to say would completely destroy his eternal plan of redemption for this planet, do you suppose he would let you say it? Does God say anything about future events in Scripture? Did the Old Testament, divinely inspired, predict the cross of Christ? Was there any sense in which Christ needed to die on the cross? Or was it a complete accident? Was it possible for Jesus to escape this death if God had decreed that he would be crucified? On the judgment day, this one I, I just love. On judgment day, can Judas say, can Judas Iscariot stand up before God and claim, I should be recognized as a hero if I hadn't betrayed Jesus and delivered him into Pilate's hands? the most important act of redemption would never have happened. Does that excuse Judas? Not at all. He might try to say, God, you owe it to me that this came to pass. But even Judas' sin, listen, even Judas' sin 
was a part of God's sovereign plan. Which does not excuse Judas. Because God did not force him to do it. The same can be said of us. And our sin. God can decree. But God's declaration is done in holiness. It's done in purity. And he cannot be charged with that which we do. Because God never forces us to do it. I can never say of my sin, God made me do it. Because God doesn't force anyone to sin, nor is he the author of sin. And yet, his will is exhaustive. See, now if we try to handle that apart from the fact that God is holy, apart from the fact that God is truth, apart from the fact that God is omniscient, and apart from the fact that God is sovereign, we're going to run into trouble. We're going to be charging God with sin. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we know these four truths from God's word. And now we're uncovering a fifth. That God has made eternal decrees that include gloriously your and my salvation in predestining us before the foundations of the world, but it also includes everything that shall come to pass. It's exhaustive. Genesis 45, verses 5 and 8. Genesis 50, verse 20. 1 Samuel 2, 25. Acts 2, verse 23. God in his will had determined that Christ should die. But Peter says, but you killed him. But you killed him. You nailed him to the cross. Even though God had decreed it. How can that be? Because God is holy. He can't be charged with sin. It's outside of the bounds. It's no wonder that at the end of this, the Westminster Confession says, we have to be careful with this one. And the care that we have to have is that we don't press our humanity upon a sovereign God. So that we get ourselves to the point that we charge God with our sin. God is holy. He commits no sin. And he never forces any human being to sin. Thirdly, God's declarative truth is this. His eternal decrees are determinative. I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounded good to me. They're determinative. 
Okay, I told you we'd back, be back to Psalm 33. Let's hit that for just a moment before we close. There, there's, there's a lot here. I've probably overweighed your mind already. But if you go back to Psalm 33, here's what we were singing as well. And I hope you noted it when we sang it. It's verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. In other words, you cannot change the eternal decrees of God. They are not changed. Okay. When, when Adam eats of the fruit, God doesn't come up with plan B. There was only one plan. There is only one plan. It's plan A. What we see before our eyes in our world and in our society today is God's eternal decree playing itself out. It is the consul of the Lord. That does not mean we don't have responsibility. Of course we do. We are held accountable for every decision we make. We are held accountable for every sin we commit. Because God forces us never to sin. But his purpose, his counsel, that which he determined before the foundations of the earth in eternity past, will come about. Remember Psalm 2? The nations say, let us throw off his fetters. The Lord laughs and says, yeah, right. Like you creatures are going to change my declared eternal decrees. You're not going to do it. And again, does that bring fear? Does that bring consternation? Or is it like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for, for being so in control. But I want to end. I want you to turn with me to Psalm, 33, Psalm 23. I want to end with Psalm 23. Because the final point is this. It's God's comforting decrees. I've mentioned it a couple of times. That this ought to bring us as God's people tremendous comfort. And one of the references in one of the books about God's eternal decrees brought me to Psalm 23. And I read something that I have read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And you're probably going to think, Bob, how did you miss that? But boy, it's beautiful. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. Beside still waters. He leads me. 
in paths of righteousness. And this picture of a shepherd with his loving care leading his sheep to pasture. And the word leading, he's leading. You know what he's not doing? He doesn't have a rope around my neck forcing me. He doesn't have me in ball and chains. He leads. He goes before. And I get to follow the lead of my Savior. It's that leading of love. It's that leading of caring. It's that leading of compassion. That what? Draws me. I want to follow him. He laid down his life for me. He paid the price of my sin for me. He loves me. I want to follow him. He leads. He leads. God does not force me. But he leads. As my shepherd. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Yeah, he sovereignly, eternally, exhaustively, determinatively leads. Nothing on that path that he's leading me on is somehow outside of his will. He knows every bend in the road. He knows every crook. He knows every rock where the wolves hide behind. He knows where the den of snakes and vipers is. And he leads me. And I want to follow. Because this shepherd laid down his life me as a sheep. I hope tonight at least that, that when you go home, when you think about this and reflect upon this, that you don't fear and you don't fret and you don't run your mind silly in circles, but you rest in the truths that God brings to us in his word. And you rest in that comfort. He leads me. Every tick of the treads of the car, every heartbeat, every breath, every shooting neuron, leads. He governs. He rules. He knows. He declares. And yet his picture is that he leads me. Let's sing.